I'm going to say this. Two weeks ago, the Jets, you kept blitzing. It cost you. If I was the New Orleans Saints, I would not blitz him. I would put the extra guys in coverage. Welcome to the Sportscasters. It is a beautiful summer Tuesday in Buffalo, New York. It is June 28th, 2011. And my name is Steve Bennett. I'm here with my co-host, Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Excellent. How are you? We have a very, very busy Sportscasters week for you. We have not one, but two episodes this week. The first of which you're listening to right now. Episode number 28 is going to feature... Interviews with Michael Lombardi from formerly the National Football Post, now NFL.com, the NFL Network. Also, the first ever former general manager of a sports league to be on the Sportscasters. He was the GM of the Oakland Raiders from 1999 to 2007. Imagine working that long for Al Davis. (laughs) God bless him. Also, today we're going to continue our 32 Teams, 32 Blog series with Nate Dunlevy from... 18 to 88, uh, Indianapolis Colts blog that was recommended to us by the last 32 for 32 participant, uh, Cheesehead TV. So we have those two interviews for you. Also, we're going to do three things in a second. Uh, A bit later, in between the interviews, Don and I are going to give you our plans for realignment in Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League. Both leagues have been rumored to be realigning. We know the NHL will realign uh, after 2011-2012 season, and we know that Major League Baseball seems uh, that they will imminently realign as well. So Don and I will present our own uh, predictions for or plans for how we think the leagues should realign. And of course, we're going to close the show with pick four. So we got a lot to get to uh, in that amount of time. So right now, why don't we get started and uh, play three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. As every hockey fan knows, uh, July 1st is right around the corner, and that's an exciting day, a lot of movement, a lot of big things happening. But it, it would be shocking if something bigger happened than the Jeff Carter-Mike Richards trade. That might go down as one of the all-time biggest shakeups of a team in history of the NHL. The, to trade not only two of your more skilled players, but your captain. Uh, and they're both young with long contracts. They had a long time of them ahead of them. Is amazing, and I love what the Flyers did, actually. I, I think they got maximum value from these two guys, and it won't. if they take a step backwards, it's, it's a small one, and it won't take them long to recover from it, especially with guys like Shen and the early Brown picks they got. 
Uh, Simmons will fit right into a roster somewhere. Uh, and it allowed him to sign a goalie, finally. I mean, And they needed a goalie, probably more than they needed those two guys. Right. Uh, they certainly did have depth at forward. That was one of their strengths. Uh, we saw it during the playoffs last year. They could score goals, but they didn't have anyone to stop them. Right. And uh, you're not going to win the Stanley Cup without someone saving some pucks, and I think maybe the Vancouver Canucks are proof of that. And before we get much farther on this, I should have said it off the top, but I didn't. Don wrote a really fantastic blog. He covers these trades, talks a little bit about the Sabres and about his time away from sports. I want you to make sure you check that out on our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com. So I, I just want, I did want to mention that since you brought those trades up. Yeah, thanks. Real quick about that. Um, do you agree with what I said about Mike Richards? Do you think it had to do with his attitude in the playoffs at all? It could be, and I think we're learning that Jeff Carter was a guy that maybe you didn't want or you don't want around in your locker room. Kind of the way he's responded to the trade. Uh, I know that Columbus had to kind of go find him in New Jersey, kind of see where his head was at, and uh, make sure he was going to report. Um, I know he did throw a little bit of a temper tantrum, right, but you right. know what? I think his reaction, and I'm sure Mike Richards and mine initially were, "Whoa." Right, right. You know, because like you said, it's such a drastic, drastic change in direction and roster and all of those things that, you know, if you're a guy like Mike Richards who's wearing a C and a guy like Jeff Carter who's scored 30 or 40 goals the last few seasons, and you have such long-term contracts, I, I think Jeff Carter has got 10 years and he's the lesser of the two, right? I think so, yeah. I think Richards had a longer deal. Uh, you know, so you would usually think contracts like that, you can't move those. Right. You know, but uh, Los Angeles and Columbus, you know, took them on. And, you know, I guess if you're Columbus, you had to do something drastic. I don't think Columbus I, – I go into this in the blog, too. I don't think they got beat that bad in the trade. I mean, they do give up um, a player with some potential, but one that wasn't meeting it there. And they gave up, I think, another – like a pick or two. But yeah, first and a third, right? They need it. I mean, Rick Nash they is just to do something. wasting away yeah. there. And I actually commented, I think, on Twitter maybe. I was shocked that Brian Campbell didn't go there. Like, his move was clearly not a hockey-related move. He, he, he got his cup, I guess. And I'm not trying to pick on his attitude too much, but to go to Florida, I mean. It's clearly a, wow, there's no state tax there. And it's there's sunny, and, and sunny, there's girls. Because right. Columbus looks like a team that could maybe make a move. I mean, they're always right on the cusp of the playoffs before they fall off. But, yeah, I was surprised by that. My first thing, U.S. soccer took it on the chin this weekend, losing 4-2 to to Mexico in the Gold Cup final. And, you know, I didn't think people cared that much about soccer. But I realized as the game was going on, if you, if you, if you follow on Facebook or you follow on Twitter – it seems like young people are catching on to soccer more and more. And I think that's part of ESPN, the worldwide leader's commitment to promoting the sport. I think that has a big part of it. Uh, but I got some bad news for all the people who have dreams of U.S. soccer uh, competing in a world level. It's, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen for a, a long, long time. It sure doesn't seem like it. Uh, even when the U.S. was winning this game 2-0, I did watch the game, and even when they were winning 2-0, they were losing. I mean, they were getting beat up bad. I heard at that point, uh, I heard an interview with Alexi Lalas who said, I think at that point, U.S. maybe had two shots. They just happened to score on both, and yep. at that point, Mexico had like nine sh legit and, scoring chances. And Mexico tied it before halftime uh, at two, and then they dominated the second half. Uh, their main man... 
Uh, it's going to take me a second to remember his name. Scored an absolute world-class goal that I couldn't imagine a U.S. player ever scoring. And when you watch a game like that, you realize just how big the gap is between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And unfortunately, it means that they're not going to be able to play in the tournament that they played before the last World Cup, where they got the game against Brazil and a game against Spain before the World Cup. They're not going to get that experience. Instead, Mexico will. And the next time they play together as a team, will be qualifying for the World Cup. And, uh, you know, it's just they're a long, long way from here. And I guess my question for you, you Don, who... Uh, you're more of a soccer guy than I am, I guess. We're probably <laughs> about the same, though. Right, not on, yeah. Uh, you, you're more of a player right. uh, than I. Uh, but my question is, where, where does U.S. soccer go from here? Well, they always seem to have it, they always seem to do it right in, in net. Like, their goalie's great. Except he was horrendous. Was he, he played the worst game of his yeah, life. I, I didn't and see and all I, one of the things you think about is, wow, Tim Howard is a star. Right. You know, and if Tim Howard is going to play at the level he played at the other night, we're really doomed. You know, I, I'm not sure how old Tim Howard is. Um, I hope he has enough in him for at least one more World Cup. Uh, I think that's the plan. Um, but if he plays at the level he played the other day, it, we're in trouble. Yeah, they got to score more, it seems like. Uh, their stars, like Landon Donovan. Like, Landon Donovan, to me, would be the... Uh, I don't have an example off the top of my head, but he's kind of... Uh, He's always there. He's always consistent, but he's never been spectacular. Like he's almost never the best offensive player on the t- on the field. For I mean, compared to like the opposition's offensive right. players, uh, Freddie Adu when he was younger was kind of touted as this as this kid. That, that might be, that. be a bright spot out yeah, of the game. Freddie Adu played. He played well. I, I thought heard he was good. I heard he yeah. set up both goals. He, he set up the goals. He he really played well. Uh, the Federation's Cup is what I was trying to remember. They won't be able to play that in 2013. Uh, they were trying to qualify uh, for the sixth spot, but they didn't. They didn't qualify for the Co- Confederations Cup. So that's in 2013. The next World Cup's in 2014. So that's obviously that's obviously a miss. Bob Bradley uh, is. Would he still be your coach today if you were running U.S. Soccer? I didn't see it. Uh I heard an interview with Landon Donovan afterwards saying, or Alexi Lalas in the interview said that uh, the that's on the players. Like the veterans should have noticed what was going on. And I mean, what are you allowed in a game? Soccer, like two subs, three, I mean, I, three subs. So yeah. I don't know how much he, he could have changed it. Maybe he could have changed the game plan a little bit. But at what point do you do it? When you're up two nothing, you're doing everything right. Although you said, the, I mean, do you go all defensive at that point and just hold on for? 40 minutes or yeah it's frustrating it's frustrating because i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying and i want to back the team and i want to be patriotic and you know that's another issue out of this game they played it in the rose bowl in in los angeles and it was 80 percent mexican mexican fans uh there was a predominantly spanish post game you know and uh geez i don't know it's it's a long road uh, to 2014 for the U.S. national soccer team. Yeah, it's it's just one of those sports where uh, we have a lot of kids that play it, but it's not the one sport we play. Whereas in somewhere like Mexico, it's it that's their sport, and uh, it's going to take a long time for the United States to catch up to that, if ever. My second thing: the NHL Hall of Fame selection committee, and boo, yeah. 
Now, Joe Newendike, I looked up his numbers. He has really respectable numbers. Doug Gilmore, I know, is a real respectable player. I don't know enough about Mark Howe. I looked at his numbers. They're not flashy, so maybe he does something else great. He played 18 years in the NHL, six years in the Western Hockey League. He's not a numbers guy. I'm fine with him getting in. I'm fine with Joe Newendike. Look at Joe Newendike's a Conn Smythe winner. Ed Belfour? <laughs> I mean, you know, Ed Belfour, I guess, is a Hall of Famer. He's got a Stanley Cup ring. What, what surprises me, though, are the two names left off. Obviously, the one you're booing, uh, Pavel Burry not making it in, and Brett, or Brett, Eric Lindros not making it in. And the only reason I say that is I know both of their injuries were cut short by, or both of their careers were cut short by injury, but they were also both dominant, dominant players at their time. I don't think you would ever say, like, Joe Newendike had great numbers, but he played in a little bit of a more offensive era, like in the nine, early 90s, late 80s. And... Uh, but I don't think you would ever call Joe Newendike the best player in the league, whereas Pavel Bure and Eric Lindros were probably both that. Don't you need some level of fame to be in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I mean, Pavel Bure, you know, had a stretch in this league. And by the way, it's not the NHL Hall of Fame. I think that's important it's to state. It's the, Hall, it's the Hockey Hall of Fame. And Pavel Bure has done some things internationally that nobody's done. I mean, he's a top three all-time scorer still to this day in the World Junior Championships. You know, he, he won a gold medal in the World Junior Championships as a young kid. Uh, he led Russia to a silver medal and a bronze medal in two Olympics he played. One of the Olympics, he was the most outstanding player. Uh, he scored six goals in the tournament, including five in the semifinals. Um, he scored 437 NHL goals, 342 NHL assists for 779 NHL points in 702 games. Yeah, I, I guess the argument I would make for both of them is although they played a short career, Bur- the four guys that made it in today, Belfour, Gilmore, Howe, Neuendijk, you would never call any of them the best even at their position, probably in any year of their career. Whereas you could easily say that about Burry or Lindros for some small stretch of their career is. I mean, Burray had a. They both had long stretches. Burray had a two sixty goal seasons in ninety two ninety three and ninety three ninety four. In ninety three ninety four, he led the Canucks all the way to the Stanley Cup, scoring thirty points in the playoffs that year. That year, in twenty four playoff games, he had sixteen goals and fourteen assists, including a game seven overtime winner. Then in Vancouver, or as his career pro- progressed in Vancouver. Um, he had uh, 20 goals in the shortened 94-95 season where they only played 43 games. Um, he scored 51 goals in 97-98. He was then traded to Florida where he scored 58 goals and 59 goals in back-to-back seasons, winning the second and third Maurice Richard, Richard trophies ever. He's won the Calder Trophy. I, I just don't get it. I mean, it's a, no, it's a no-brainer to me that this guy's a Hall of Famer. Is there a maximum number of players that can make it every year? I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I just like, I mean, it's not like they were good for one year. Like, is, uh, is Terrell Davis in the Football Hall of Fame? Yeah, uh, yes. And his career had to be shorter than Burray's. You know, Burray has one, two, three, four, five seasons with 50 goals or more when nobody was scoring 50 goals. Right? Who was scoring 50 goals in 2000, 2001? Right, yeah. Those were the years Nobody to clamp down again. Nobody was putting up numbers like that. And I don't know. It's very frustrating. Very, very, very frustrating. Obviously, I'm a huge Pavel Bure fan. I've been my whole entire life. 
and it's just ridiculous. I don't know how he's not there. I have no problem either with the guys that were elected today. Right. Congratulations to them. I think they're all deserving. I'm really glad that the Hall of Fame has a place for Doug Gilmore, but I can't understand why they don't have a place for Pavel Bure. I don't get it. Right, and as much as I hated Lindros too, I mean, I'm sure they'll both make it in, but it, it was strange to me. All right, my number two thing. Drew Rosenhaus says no, but Don, I ask you, do you think we'll ever see Terrell Owens in the NFL again? Hmm. I, I'm not even sure he would get the chance. What? Well, I shouldn't say that. As many drops as he had and as much of a sideshow as Cincinnati was last year, he was pretty productive. Like from a fantasy football player's point of view, I know there were people that rushed to the waiver wire to pick up T.O. or because even though he had his drops and had games or maybe he wasn't putting his all into it, he did get plenty of touchdowns. I don't remember exact numbers, but... It's just strange. Like, why did this just come up yesterday suddenly that he has this ACL injury? And then today, Drew Rosenhaus is on ESPN saying he's many, many months into recovery now. Yeah, they said he got it filming his rea- like a reality show or something, right? Either that... Um, they're not revealing it, but... Uh, it said that he, he said Rosenhaus said it did not happen while the receiver was taping a show for VH1, as one source oh, okay. told Chris Mortensen. So his agents denying that. I don't know that that necessarily means that it's not true. He had nine TDs last year, nine hundred eighty-three yards, almost a thousand yards for a thirty-seven-year-old player. I mean, he's still effective. Um, if you're this close, if you're this close, right, and he puts you over the edge, is he worth it? Because he is a knucklehead. Yeah, he's a knucklehead, and but he is a but he's not a criminal. No, he's not. That's why it's funny. Like people hate him more than they spend more time hating him, I should say, than they spend time hating guys like uh, Plaxico Burris or somebody. I mean, people kind of defended Plaxico a little bit, thinking he didn't he didn't hurt anybody types thing. But yeah, I don't know. Like he is, he's kind of destroys locker rooms and leaves quarterbacks in his wake and stuff like i would say more ocho cinco is worth the risk but he just isn't hasn't been as good right career wise owens ranks only behind jerry rice in all-time receiving yardage and it's third behind rice and moss and touchdowns i mean he's a no doubt hall of famer do you buy chris carter i think it is that said he's not a top 10 all-time wide receiver no i don't buy it i think he's an i think he's a top five receiver all time yeah, I mean, I mean the way numbers bear it out. Th- the strength that this guy has and the way he's played physically, the way he's dominated, I mean, and the numbers he's put up. He's had four years over 1,300 yards, and that's with three different, uh, two different teams. And uh, Donovan McNabb had his best season with him. Right. Je- Je- uh, Jerry. Jeff Garcia, I'm sure, did. I don't I won't have the numbers in front of me, but that has to be true. So I mean, uh, he- To me, I... If, you know, maybe if we get the chance to talk to Terrell Owens again, or to Peter King again, we can ask him about Terrell Owens as a Hall of Famer. But you know what? I think I, I said he was a knucklehead, and I stand by that. But right. he's not a criminal. He, he's not a bad guy, I don't think. Right, he's not a cheater. I think he's a guy who wants attention, and in his battle for attention, sometimes does some stupid stuff. Right, he's, just, he's a prima donna. Yeah. But I mean... Michael Irvin was too, and Michael Irvin was also a knucklehead, and he just—I I guess the problem is that To takes his teammates down with him. I mean, one way or another, he divides. He the might room. not do it publicly, but behind the scenes, he he tears teams apart. 
Uh, my last thing, also hockey-related, is just uh, I can't wait for July 1st. The Sabres are already a part of a significant deal that brought Robin McGeer to the team, and I talk about that in the blog, too, about how that's a deal that in the past they never would have made just because of the amount of salary they took on, and some of it might be just wasted space. But they did it. They took the risk because, I mean, it wasn't really much of a risk because of the amount of money the owner has and is willing to spend. In the past, that deal would have never gone down. In the past, I would have never even considered the Sabres in for a player like Brad Richards. And uh, I don't expect it, but I wouldn't be shocked if it happened. And I'm looking forward to July 1st to see what does happen. This is episode number 28. And this week, we're going to also have episode 29. And I'm going to give you a small preview inside episode 29 right now. I talked to Greg Wyshynski, the puck daddy, and you'll be able to hear that in episode 29. When I asked him who he thought the dark horse for Brad Richards was, he said the Buffalo Sabres. Then later I talked to Sarah Kwok from SI.com, who doesn't know me at all, doesn't know where we're from, asked her who she thought the dark horse for Mike Richards was, and she said the Sabres. This is a real thing. Right. Like The Sabres are legitimately going to make an offer on Friday at noon to Brad, Rich- Brad Richards to be a Sabre. Right. And some of the things he he said, like, I don't want to play in a huge media market, makes you think that this could be a place that's, an interest- that's perfect for yeah, him. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, not wanting to play in a huge media market. I have, I, huge hockey media market or huge media market? You know, like, that's a good question, have, too. People have said that about Chris Drury left Buffalo and went to New York saying he likes that he can kind of blend in there. Right. So, I mean, New York's the biggest media market in the world, but it's just... It's not a big hockey market, whereas Buffalo is the opposite. It's a small, I don't know what, we're like the 30th biggest uh, city in the country. Always number two, number three in, in hockey. hockey ratings. Right. So, I mean, everyone's going to know who he is. Everyone's going to know his name. Everyone's going to know his face. But you know what? He's not the kind of guy, he's not in the, the time of his life where he's going to be on Chippewa. Right, right. You know, so he doesn't need to deal with that, I don't think. You know, and I, I, hockey players love it here. The Sabres have $12 million, 12.5-ish in cap space. What does it take to sign him? I mean, I, I know there's a cap. Like it, uh, The cap on a player, I think, is a certain percentage of your team's cap. But do they have to, do they have to make another deal to, to get him in? I think years might be more important than dollars, per se. And the cap hit is an average. Right. So if you can get Just him front between around 9 or $10 million on average, that might not be out of the question. You know, and I think the winner in this sweepstakes, I think the money's going to be probably about the same. Like, I think the Rangers are going to bid what the Rangers are going to bid, and the Sabres are going to bid what the Sabres are going to bid, and the Leafs or whatever. I think it's going to be relatively the same. The question is going to be, how long are, is each team willing to pay that amount of money to Brad Richards? You know, right. are you willing to sign him to a 10-year deal? Are you willing to sign him to a 12-year deal? That might be what it takes to get him. Uh, a general manager on Friday might have to decide, Will okay, he'll come here for one more year. Can I do it for one more year? Do you think Darcy Regeer, who has always been frugal, and now I think we're seeing a little bit that it hasn't entirely been his doing. It's probably been more of the owner's doing, if anything. Do you think, though, he totally has lost the fiscal responsibility aspect? Do you think he signs a crazy deal knowing it's a bad deal? Just to get a guy like that? Well, what's a bad deal for Brad Richards? Uh, I, I guess, like you said, it's the years. So what is he, 30 now, 31? 
So maybe when he's 39, if you're still paying him $6 million a year or something. But maybe that, again, is what you talked about. Maybe you give him those years, but you front load the now here's hell out a, of it. Here's another thing that you have to consider. This CBA is just about up. Right. And during that contract, whatever you sign him to, there's going to be a new CBA, and there's going to be a reduction in the salary cap. You think it's going to go down? Yes. So if you're going to be prepared to compete coming out of that salary cap, you're going to have to leave yourself a little bit of flexibility. So I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to spend $12 million on Friday, even if that's what the Sabres have left. Right. I don't know. First of all, you need some space. I mean, look at They'll figure that out, and maybe that's not that exciting to talk about anyway. Right, right. But the, the, the bigger point is, is there, it, you have to be – just because the owner is willing to pay any amount doesn't necessarily mean it's smart to pay that amount for the future of the franchise. And I think that Darcy Regeer is the perfect guy to have there because he has been frugal in the past. Right. And uh, he knows how to manage a team on a budget. And um, I think him being a fis- fiscally responsible guy kind of will help through this process. But, hey, like you said, it's July 1st and we're players. And That's nothing's the most more exciting, exciting than that. With Darcy Regeer, just one more thing, quick thing to add is the one place he's been really good in his career is in trades, not necessarily in spending money. But, I mean – uh, we got Danny Breyer in a trade where we robbed Phoenix. We got uh, the Groshek Stu Barnes trade was a pretty was nice a trade. I mean, it was Barnaby, which was a nice fan favorite of a player, but Stu Barnes came in immediately, was a was a nice player. The only trade he really lost on probably were, were Hashik and. Uh, well, Hashik gave Mike him no Packer. choice to right. lose on that in trade. In both of those, he had his hands he had his hands tied. tied, and he did win the first Pekka or the first Hashik trade, right? Or was oh, he not? The, yeah, he might not have been the I'm G not on sure. That. I'm not sure, but but the Sabres did trade for Hashik, and that was a big victory. Whoever and, was the author and of that trade. If you read Calgary articles, he he dominated this last trade. Mm-hmm. Dominated the fact that he got a pick. I, uh, initial reports were all that he had to give up that yep. pick, and then it flipped around. It was like an extra gift on Christmas. My third thing, Frank McCourt, you are a disaster, sir. Unbelievable that the owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers has to file for bankruptcy protection. Unbelievable. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that that is even possible. But sure enough, the, La- the Los Angeles Dodgers um, entered a $150 million bankruptcy financing agreement after the club certif- uh, satisfied certain concerns raised by Major League Baseball. This is from ESPN.com. And, uh, you know, he has tons of, of uh, creditors, including Manny Ramirez, including Vince Scully, yeah, the yeah, guy I who broadcasts that. the games. Uh, he owes a couple hundred thousand dollars, too. And, you know, <clears throat> makes you scared to get married. <laughs> because <laughs> even the owner of the Dodgers is basically being ruined by divorce. And I think it would have been smart a long time ago to probably sell the team. And I think that if baseball is smart, they'll use this as an opportunity to get Mark Cuban yeah, in this league. Yeah, I was going to say, Mark Cuban wanted a team. And, it's uh, and he would love the Dodgers, and I bet he'd buy him sure. in a second. And Why not? Second biggest market in America, and in L.A. The bottom line is, this guy is not going to be able to hold on to this team long term. No. He's just not going to be able to. Not at all. So cut your losses, get the deal that you want, sell it to Mark Cuban, split it up with your old lady, and move on. 
Sounds like a plan. Speaking of plans, from here, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Michael Lombardi, one of uh, the guests I'm most proud of in the small history of the sportscasters. Uh, certainly a regular on the BS Report. Nice enough to take out some time for us today. That interview is going to be next. After that, Don and I are going to come back and give you our plans for NBA or National Hockey League and Major League Baseball realignment. And then we're going to continue our 30 for 32 Teams 32 Blog series with an interview with Nate Dunlevy from 18 to 88. And we're going to close off with pick four. So we'll be right back. Our next guest is from Ocean City, New Jersey, and played his college football at Hofstra University. He started his coaching career at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He has headed the Oakland Raiders and Cleveland Browns personnel departments and has worked for the San Francisco 49ers, Denver Broncos, and Philadelphia Eagles. He has since become a sports writer and television personality. He started writing at Sports Illustrated, was the main man at the National Football Post, and now writes for NFL.com. He has appeared on the NFL Today, Inside the NFL, and is now a regular on the NFL Network. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Michael Lombardi. How are you doing today, Mr. Lombardi? I'm doing great, Steve. Thank you. Great introduction. Love that song. Yeah, it's a great one. Thank you, for, thank you for taking some time to join us today. We really appreciate it. And I guess, you know, anytime you're doing a football interview right now, Unfortunately, you kind of have to start a little bit with the legal stuff. And I guess my first question for you is just, where are we right now? And what needs to be done between now and whatever the cutoff date is to not have to cancel any of the good stuff? Well, I think we have to get down to the core issues. I think, obviously, we have to focus and get some type of agreement on some of the core issues in terms of the revenue sharing, the revenue splits with the players, the revenue sharing with the owners. So... There's got to have to be some formal agreement on some components of this deal, and it's going to have to happen this week. I think if we get it the next week, it's going to be the 4th of July. It's going to be late. It's going to take a little time to draft this language. Uh, oftentimes in collective bargaining agreements, we get an agreement, and then it takes about four months before the agreement is actually typed and, and put into paper. So hopefully you know, they can start ironing some of these differences out, and it's going to have to happen quickly. How far apart do you think they are as we stand right now? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very tough question because on some issues, they're all, on the core issues, they probably still are very far. And people that I've talked to that have been in the meeting feel that uh, we will miss some preseason games, that we will have a full season, but it's going to take more time than just this is just going to happen overnight. So uh, I think there's a lot to be resolved, and it's going to take some time. Do you think that the players or the owners, I mean, obviously it seems like the owners should be able to hold out longer and that the players, um, because, you know, there is kind of a, a group of them that aren't maybe as rich as people expect, would be the least likely to be able to hold out, you know, and lose those game checks. Do we need that to happen to get to an agreement or do you think there's enough foresight that will allow them to kind of get this done before you know, it's really, really serious and people are really, really starting to lose money. Well, I'm hopeful that, you know, fear does the work of reason, that, that ultimately you'll see uh, 
every side understand. You know, the owners do have a risk here because you can't make money in your business if you don't operate your business. So they have a risk as well as the players. Now, the players obviously have a financial risk in terms of missing game checks, not being able to pay on their mortgages and all those things. So there is some. But I think cooler heads need to prevail. We've come this far. Unfortunately, March, nobody viewed that. The owners did, but I don't think the players viewed that as a real deadline. And I think now we're coming upon a real deadline, which is ultimately losing preseason games, losing preseason checks. The pie is going to shrink tremendously, and I think there needs to be a deal done rapidly. And, you know, I know the owners started uh, with, uh, like, a billion-dollar amount that they wanted to roll back, and, and it seems like they've, they've made quite a bit of concession, and they're down to about 46% or something like that. And I wonder if uh, pu- the public is going to start to turn on the players soon and kind of feel like the owners have, have made the necessary uh, concessions. Do you feel that way, or do you think the public plays a role in this at all in terms of uh, putting pressure on one side or another? I've learned in my career the public really only cares about one thing. They're not in favor of the owners or the players. They care about football. They care about the game itself. And nobody's winning the PR battle. I said that back in March. Nobody was ever going to win the PR battle. Uh, it's very difficult to control the PR battle. The, the owners, they need to they need to get a deal done. The players need to get a deal done. The PR battle's never going to get won. And I think that no fans are going to be happy until we actually know we have football. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it's a no-win situation. So let's just transfer. Let's switch off of that a little bit. Now, if you're one to read the work of Michael Lombardi, as I have, you know that yesterday on NFL.com, you put a a pretty passionate uh, post up about the NFL Network's top 100 players and your dissatisfaction towards it. Uh, what is it that bothers you about the list so much, and where do you think the the biggest mistakes is? It is is Aaron Rodgers uh, at number 11 really the biggest? You know the biggest mistake so far? Or is it even something like uh, Donovan McNabb even being on the list at number 100? Well, I mean, you know, if Ray Lewis, for example, happens to be in the top 10, he's not one of the top 10 players in the National Football League today. He's a Hall of Fame player. He's a great player. Uh, his career is remarkable, and he's done tremendous things. He's a top 10 leader of the ball of the team, but he's not a top 10 player. I think this what bothers me most, and I wrote about it, is the fact that the list is based on a predetermination of who's good and who's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have Dwayne Bow because he scored so many touchdowns last year in the 40s and have Greg Jennings in the 70s, to me, is completely erroneous in terms of the value at position to a position. To have a fullback on the list. Now, you know, people say, well, he blocked for... Adrian Foster and Foster had 2,000 yards of timeout. You know, you know, Foster's in a lot of one-back sets, a lot of the things they do in Houston. And when Vontae Leach is on the field for the Houston Texans, it really helps you handle Andre Johnson. You can double him. You don't have to worry about the third receiver. There's a lot more things you can do. So, you know, it's sometimes a fullback hinders your offense. It doesn't always help it. And to have him as a, on the list ahead of some prominent pass rushers, to me, I think the whole list is is really erroneous. I think it was done. Nobody understands exactly what was the premise and the criteria for the list. I think that's a part of the problem. And, you know, from my drafting background, I've always asked the question, who would I rather have? Would I rather have Aaron Rodgers? Would I rather have an offensive lineman? I'm going to take Aaron Rodgers every time. So my view is the six quarterbacks who are the best quarterbacks in the league should go one through six and then start the list. I think the list reminds me of something that I really enjoy when you talk about, and that's the blue and the red, the blue players being the elite, the red just being outside of that. Do you think there's players on the list that even wouldn't be in the red in your categories? 
I mean, Champ Bailey is not a not a blue player. I think he's marginal as a red player. He doesn't run very well. He's still on the list. Dwayne Bowe, to me, is a marginal red player. He's not a number one receiver. I mean, just watch the Baltimore Raven game. He was You couldn't even feel him in the game. I mean, his presence isn't there. I, I could go chapter and verse. Andre Garrard, the offensive lineman, is not a red player right now for the Dallas Cowboys. You know, there's a lot of guys. The Cowboys had all these red have all these players on the list, and yet their team couldn't win very many games. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of problems. I don't think people understand that then is then and now is now. And what you've done in a few years ago is not absolutely correct as opposed to what you've done tomorrow and what you can do in the future. I'm in Buffalo, New York, and I know a lot of, uh, a lot of Bills fans are disappointed that not even one Buffalo Bill, well, unless they – by miracle, have one in the top ten, which I could guarantee they won't. <laughs> uh, they're not going to have anyone on the list. Do they have any red or blue players on the team? I mean, I know there's a lack of talent, but I, personally, I'm a little surprised that Kyle Williams didn't make the top 100. Maybe Stevie Johnson. I mean, outside of that, it's just really, really thin, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the Bills are losing for a reason. Their talent level has gone down. They haven't drafted well in a numerous amount of years. I mean, Kyle Williams is a nice player. You know, I think he's a, he's not quite a red player. Maybe he's on the border of being a red player. I think he's close. Uh, I think Steve Johnson certainly has, has emerged as a, as a good player. But when, you, when you're a red player, you're in the top ten receivers in the league. I'm not sure I'm ready to give that to, Chris jo- to, to Stevie Johnson right now. And, you know, Lee Evans, to me, has always been a red player, could potentially be a blue player. I think if Lee Evans played for the New England Patriots, he might be a blue player. Uh, but unfortunately, he's in Buffalo. The offense has struggled. The offensive line struggles. What he does really well is vertically run down the field. It's tough to vertically run down the field when the offensive line doesn't block. There's a lot of components that go wrong with the Buffalo Bills, and I think they're, they're going to need to keep adding an influx of talent into the roster before they can crack into this top 100. Can you think of another team in the league that has as few red and blue players as the Buffalo Bills? I mean, we could. it sounds like you only think they have one red player, and that's Lee Evans. Well, I, I think, you know, when you looked at the Rams last year or Seattle last year, and both teams are playing for a conference for the division title there, they don't have a lot of red or blue players there last year in Seattle. You know, I think it's ultimately comes down to, you know, where your team is, how you've drafted, and how you've been able to develop some players. And I don't think Buffalo has been able to do that in the highest level. Cleveland, for example, you know, until they made the Patron, Peyton Hillis trade, they had Joe Thomas and they had Joshua Cribs and they had some nice pieces, but. You know, the Bills don't even have some of those nice pieces to go along with them. I mean, when you watch it, C.J. Spiller, could he be a red player? Yeah, sure he could be. He shows talent, but he hasn't demonstrated it on a consistent basis. And I think really, ultimately, until you get the quarterback fixed in Buffalo, and, you know, I heard Jim Kelly on our network yesterday feel very confident that Ryan Fitzpatrick can be the quarterback of the future. I'm a little hesitant (laughs) to believe that. I think Ryan Fitzpatrick's a nice player. I think he's what, what what I would call a good player, but is he going to be a great player? I don't. I'm not sure. I'm ready to go there. So until you get the quarterback fixed, like they did in St. Louis, the other players really can't shine. Since you've been tracking the Blues and the Reds, has there been a less talented team to win a playoff game than the Seattle Seahawks? Because you mentioned them as being kind of void of red and blue talent, yet they did win a playoff game last year. Yeah, they did, and you know, and, and really they won it in an ugly manner. I mean, they outscored a team, the Marshawn Lynch. A former Bill had a had a break about seventy five tackles to get a run, and they did a nice job. I think they did it with coaching. I think what Seattle proves, and what a lot of teams in the league prove, is you can win some games on coaching if you have the right pieces in place and if you have the right tactician. I think ultimately it's a coaching league with some talent involved, and I think you have to be a chess player to really excel. 
I think the Rams are developing there. I mean, Roger Saffold, the left tackle, is going to be a red player. I think he's very good. You know, I think they can certainly, you know, Sam Bradford can, is going to, should be a red player very soon. He's, he's got the ability to really be a good player. I mean, they're coming along. They're quite not there yet. But I, I think Buffalo just needs to start collecting more players and hit on some of these draft picks. How good do you think Sam Bradford's going to be? I think Sam Bradford's going to take the mother may I step forward. I think Josh McDaniels, as you know, you read my work. I think Josh McDaniels is an outstanding coach. I think he'll take him on a level. I mean, look what he did with Kyle Orton. And Kyle Orton, you know, doesn't have near the talent or near the toughness that Sam Bradford has. So I really believe that, that Sam Bradford's going to have an outstanding season next year. I think the Rams offense will have an outstanding. The Rams offense was very bland last year. I know Pat Shermer became a head coach and he's now with the Cleveland Browns, but he became a head coach in Cleveland because he understands the West Coast offense for Mike Holmgren. They were not a, a multiple offense last year in St. Louis, and I think that's about to change. I should probably back up one step real quick, and uh, we're probably never going to talk to someone that is going to be able to answer this question better than you, and that is just a little bit of a comparison between Al Davis and Ralph Wilson. How similar guys do you think they will are, and how do you see it ending for Ralph Wilson and Al Davis? I mean, Ralph Wilson's kind of said that he is never going to sell this team as long as he's alive. Is that a bad thing for Buffalo? And, uh, you know, how much longer does Al Davis take the Raiders into the future? And kind of if you could just compare the two guys, because uh, I don't think I'll ever have the chance to ask anyone who will have a better, better answer of that question. Well, I've never worked for Ralph Wilson. I mean, I right, yeah, I know Davis that. And, yeah. and, and I think that they're very similar. They both come from the AFL days. They're both kind of... Uh, you know, they both are set in their ways, and I think that sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. I think they both really resist change. I think uh, Ralph got affected by the Tom Donahoe decision of general manager, so he really doesn't want anybody in his organization that he doesn't really feel comfortable with or know, which is very similar to what Al Davis wants. He doesn't really want anybody in his organization that he has to bring in and train. He wants byproducts of the Raiders system. So I think they're stuck in time. I had a sign in my office that said, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevance even less. And that was said by Eric Shininsky, the United States Army Chief of Staff. And I think that's true. And I think both organizations really, that could be the mantra. They don't like change, and they've become irrelevant over the last five, six, seven years. And I think that's a change. I think it's very difficult when you've learned football or if you've been a part of football in one way and you haven't been able to keep up. And I think with Mr. Wilson, I think he doesn't want to bring anybody in. He did that once, and he felt like he got burnt by Tom. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think that's I think the it's combination true. of that's the feeling that you get from there. So I, I think that he doesn't want to bring anybody in with a new idea, a new way of doing business. But he nixes there from the past. He's comfortable with them, and hopefully he thinks he can handle the job. And the Raiders just don't want to change anything they do. Haven't been there. They like the way they do things. They like the way they draft. That doesn't always translate into winning, but that's what they do. Do they have poor reputations among the other NFL owners? Well, again, you know, I don't know about Mr. Wilson. You know, I know that he's obviously has been volatile at times. He lives in Detroit, so he's not there around. And I think he obviously has let people do their jobs. I mean, you don't go to four Super Bowls, in a, you know, in a, in a span of time without letting people do their jobs. And there's been highs and lows at Buffalo. And the same thing at the Raiders. You know, we went to the Super Bowl in 2002. But I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think Al Davis wants to run his team. He wants to run. The, he wants to be the sole proprietor of his team. I think he wants to have the direction. I'm not sure that's the case in Buffalo having never been there. How do you think the two owners will be remembered in general uh, maybe five years from now when they are both have departed from the world? Maybe 10. Well, <laughs> <laughs> 
say 20. Uh, 20 you know, sure. I, I think, you know, th- these are, you're talking about founding fathers of the AFL, and I think that their place in history is secure. I think they, they certainly have been part of the fabric of the National Football League and the AFL, and there's a lot of great things that they've done. I mean, there's a lot of great things that Al Davis did in terms of branding the Raiders. And I think that as time goes on, and I think that as you look back on some of the things they did, I think they'll be viewed in, in a very positive foundation-building light. As a guy who has hired coaches and actually advised, uh, this, I think it was, was it the Rams that you advised uh, on hiring a coach, I wonder how critical do you think tactical knowledge is compared to teaching strategy for coaching success? Uh, I think, you know, to me it's about leadership. I think when you hire a head coach, you better make sure he's a good leader. And I think he better be good in the four areas of leadership. And then I think he's got to be a chess player. I think he's got to be able to be able to handle the strategic aspect of the game. And what you're seeing in the NFL today is more specialization of head coaches, a guy who's no really not a head coach. He's an offensive coordinator who's in charge of becoming a head coach. And I think that's really not always good for the, the overall structure and the foundation of your team. So I think you've got to be really astute of the game today. You have to understand the dynamics of the game today, what goes into the game. Uh, you know, if you, you have to really believe in a, in a philosophy and you have to believe in a strategy that's going to prevail, and you better know it from inside and out. I'm a big Saints fan, and the last time we were searching for a coach, we ended up hiring Coach Payton. But Coach Payton wanted to go to Green Bay, who ended up hiring McCarthy. And interestingly, about six years later, they both have a Super Bowl. Uh, what, it is, what is it about those two guys that have allowed them to be so successful in the league? Well, I think Sean, we tried to hire Sean in 2004 in Oakland, and I think Sean's a bright offensive mind. He can coach the quarterback. And I think anytime you can coach the quarterback and you have a sense of toughness, I think Sean benefited from being around Bill Parcells. He understands that he's not afraid of confrontation, which is important to be a head coach. To be a head coach, you've got to be willing to tell the players what you really think, and you can't hide behind somebody else to do it. And I think Sean does that very well. I think Mike McCarthy was the right guy for the situation. Ted Thompson wanted somebody to come in who could coach the team, who was willing to change, who was willing to be adaptive, which he is. I mean, they bring a lot of players in. They change. They're not, he's not trying to run the organization from the head coaching chair. And I think he fits what Ted Thompson wants to do. And then the other factor is he can coach the quarterback. And he does a good job of coaching the quarterback. You know, it's interesting for Mike McCarthy. He was in San Francisco when they picked Alex Smith and passed on Aaron Rodgers, and he ends up really winning the Super Bowl with a guy that maybe he didn't particularly think was better than Alex Smith, I don't know. I didn't read his report, but it's interesting how things have changed. Yeah. As a personnel man, would you consider picking up a player like Plaxico Burris or Tiki Barber? Well, because I think older running backs don't really give you much to your roster. You know, when you're an older running back at 36 years old, you're not going to play special teams. And if you're not the starting running back, then you've got to play special teams. You've got to be able to cover punts and kicks, even though covering punt kicks anymore is really a fate is not going to be really a, a strong suit in the NFL based on the kickoff rules. So I think, you know, to me, Tiki's going to have a tough time because he's not going to be a featured back, and then he can't really offer anything to the kicking game. So that's going to be a problem. And then Plexico, before I would really judge him, I'd have to work him out. I mean, he's never been a vertical down-the-field receiver. He's always been a body rebound-type receiver, which means he uses his big body to get in position to out-rebound the defender for the football, which allows you to get away with not being very fast. And I think he can do that, but whether his legs are underneath of him, whether he still has some explosion in his lower body needs to be seen. Is Terrell Pryor a legitimate NFL prospect? I don't know at what position. I know John Gruden thinks he's a tremendous athlete. I, I, I think until I see him work out, 
I don't know whether that to be true. I don't think he's a quarterback in the NFL. I think his delivery, his, his ability to throw the football is going to be subpar to what you're going to need to be successful in the NFL. Will we see Terrell Owens in the NFL again? I don't think so. You know, with the ACL, it's going to take him a while. It's going to take a team to take a chance on him. I, I really would have a hard time thinking somebody's going to sign him when he's not healthy, when he's not ready to go, So uh, and rehab him along. So I think in, unless he's signed by a team maybe late November or December that's in a playoff run that needs a receiver and he feels very comfortable about the chemistry of their team, I would find it hard time thinking he's going to play next year. The sportscasters are here with the great Michael Lombardi. It's, it's a real honor to have him on the show. Of course, you can find his work on NFL.com. He's all over the NFL Network. And you can find him on Twitter. He is at Michael Lombardi. Just a couple more questions before we let you go. Um, I know that Commissioner Goodell will not, he won't walk away from the office until he has a team in L.A., I feel like. What team do you think makes the most sense that will eventually end up in L.A.? I, you know that's such a hard question because you know, LA is such a, a an interesting market. I mean, it's it's very uh, you know it, it, it's a very kind of uh, you know what's trending right now type of thing. And if the team's not successful right away, do they have the patience to handle an expansion team? So I, I think really the kind of team that's best served in a, in Los Angeles is a team that has a quarterback of significant of significance. I think that's what really helped this or help this city gravitate to a team. I think they like stars in this town, and I think that would be important. So whatever team comes here, and again, that's going to be predicated on on who buys teams, who sells, who's selling a team, and all those things. But I think a quarterback is the essential component. So it sounds like in Los th- Angeles to be successful. It sounds like maybe you think right now San Diego might be the best fit then of the rumored teams. Well, you know, it's very difficult. In the state of California, if you understand any of the politics that goes on here, none of those teams in the state of California have a decent stadium or a new stadium or a stadium that they feel very comfortable about, the 49ers, the Raiders, or the Chargers. So I think that California is a very difficult state. They're cutting they're cutting education. They're cutting uh, all sorts of programs because the state's are, uh, in the fight and fiscally uh, bankrupt, and so they've got to handle a lot of different areas. And, and I think building a stadium is the last thing on their mind. And if AIG can build a stadium, I'm sure they can entice some team, whether it's a California team or somewhere else, but I'm sure they could. As we get going and uh, the players get back on the field, what are some of the storylines that you're going to be most interested when training camp does start, assuming it does start? Is there something you're looking forward to finding out the most? Well, you know, that's an incomplete question because I don't know where free agency is going to go. You mm-hmm. know, and I think if certain teams, I think if the Rams were to sign Darren Sproles, I'd be fascinated to see how their team would be together. I think that would really give them the kind of player they need to really help their football team. I think if the Patriots were to find an outside pass rusher to go along with that talented team up there, I think that would be interesting. Again, to see where are the Jets and what are they going to do at certain positions. You know, I think there's so many questions about the league that you look at it, you have, but until they find out where we are in free agency and what pieces have been placed in one another, it's very difficult to really say, well, I'm anxious to see how that comes along. I'm anxious to see what Tim Tebow does in Denver. Is he going to be a starting quarterback? Can he actually function in this offense? Does the Broncos staff really like him, or are they just really saying that because they want him to be a part of the team? So I think there's a lot of lot of scenarios, but until we complete the process, which is free agency, you know, it's always going to be difficult. Today, the uh, the rookies are going through the rookie symposium uh, the NFL PA was uh, instrumental in making sure that that process took place this year. How important do you think that that symposium is for players who enter the league as someone who has worked as a player personnel? 
Well, I, I think it really comes down to the clubs itself. I think you have to have a program for when you bring a player into the organization. I think you can't rely on the, the PA or the league office to help you. I think you've got to have a, a detailed program when you bring a player into your community, when you bring a player into your organization. You've got to know exactly what you want to do with him. You have to have a game plan for him, and I think it's the responsibility of the team that drafts him, more so than the NFL PA. The Sportscasters here, again, with the great Michael Lombardi. You can find him on NFL.com. You can find him on the NFL Network and, of course, on Twitter at Michael Lombardi. How do you like Twitter? You a fan of, uh, you a fan of it? I like it. I enjoy it. You know, I, I try not to be overbearing with Twitter. Um, I, I have certain thoughts that I like to. Sometimes I, I, I do it four or five times a day. Sometimes I do it maybe once a day. I don't know. I think it's a great way. I like the interaction with fans. I like to be able to communicate with people. I mean, I'm, I'm essentially, you know, I'm a football person. I'm not a TV personality. I'm a football guy. I've always been my whole life, and I enjoy meeting people, and I enjoy talking to people about the game. Do you... What was your reaction to the Jay Cutler situation on Twitter? Do you think that if you were in player personnel, would you be really nervous about your players and Twitter? Well, I think Jay Cutler was the first casualty of Twitter. I think it was unfair what people were saying about him. I don't think it's always correct. I think if you see by the top 100 list that sometimes players make statements or they put together lists that aren't, aren't always necessarily correct. So I think, you know, Jay Cutler paid a price for that, and it's unfortunate. His teammates rallied around him, which I think gives him a lot of support and should have given him a lot of confidence. How has fantasy football changed what you do um, in, t- in terms of uh, being a writer and a reporter? Well, I, I you know, I've... I think you have to embrace change in no matter what you do. And, and I think fantasy football is part of the game. I think you can't put your nose up to it and say, I don't like it. I think it forces you to learn more about the players. It forces you to really get in detail and understand who's a good player and who's not. And I think it's kind of a self-educational process. I don't play fantasy football, but for me, I'm fascinated by it. And I'm always interested to see who's good and who's not and how it works out. It comes down to your knowledge of the league. If you know the league, you can play fantasy football. All right, Michael Lombardi, his first uh, trip into the Sportscasters. We can't thank you enough. Uh, Really appreciate the time, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thank you. I want to thank the great Michael Lombardi for joining us on the podcast today. Don, I don't know where it stops, but it seems like every week the guests just get better and better. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. Just to think, you know, we just started this in January. Jeff Passon was the first guest, and uh, it's gone up from here. But uh, definitely very excited for for Mr. Lombardi to join us, and I, I can't thank him enough. But... We have some more business, and that business is realigning Major League Baseball and the National Hockey Leagues. Yeah, we're going to fix sports. Both leagues have said that they plan to align, and alignment is imminent in both leagues. So this isn't a crazy, this isn't a crazy idea that we came up with. Uh, this is something that is going to happen. And uh, Don's going to kick us off and tell us how he would realign Major League Baseball. All right. I took two approaches to this. One was a simple fix. Uh, and for me, that easy fix was just to move Houston from the National League Central to the AL West. They have a odd number of teams, and by that I just mean different from the rest of the divisions. The AL West only has four, I believe, so that makes everything equal. 
and it's not all that crazy geographically. So I think that's the easiest fix. So I don't and know. you would leave the playoff format the same. Leave it the same. Yeah, you why not? To it. You don't have to touch anything. You just move one team. You don't even have to move them physically. You just change the division they're in. My idea is basically the same, except I went with a little bit of playoff expansion to try to put a little bit of the emphasis back on winning the actual division. So here's my plan. I would do exactly what Don would do and move the Houston Astros into the AL West. The rest of the divisions I would leave the same and create two leagues with three divisions and five teams in each. So the same as Don there. What I would do is I would go from one wild card in each league to three. And the way I would set up the playoffs is is there would be two wild cards and the lowest division winner would play a one-game playoff. Uh, the, the winners would then play the bye teams in a best of five and then the championship series and then the World Series. So I would add one round of playoffs with one-game playoffs between the two wild cards and the lowest division winner. So this is how it would go using the standings as they are right now in the American League, for example. The Yankees and the Tigers have the best records amongst the division winners, so they would get buys, wouldn't have to play in the first round. So Boston and the Yankees are separated by one game right now. Right. But under the current system, they, they don't really care if they win the, win the division or play the wild card. They'll, they'll kind of take it either way. They would probably, in the last week of the season, would rather set up their playoff rotation than win the division, per se. Right. Under this format, they would want to win the division to avoid having to play the one-game playoff against the wild card team. So the Yankees and Tigers would get a bye. The Red Sox would play the th- uh, would being the highest wild card team would play the second highest wild card team, and then the division winner would play the worst wild card team. So Boston actually would play Tampa, and uh, Cleveland would play Texas, who is the uh, the other division winner. That's interesting. Did you follow all that? that <laughs> I think so. It definitely uh, bunks tradition a little bit. And uh, I also, other than my easy fix, I also did a geographical fix, which works for the most part, but it gets interesting in things like I just split the teams into east and west, no more of this AL, NL. They can figure out the rules or whatever as far as DL and stuff like that uh, when they do it. But the northeast, the most logical division would be the Mets, Yankees, Boston, Toronto, and Philly. So you'd have three powerhouses in one mm. division. I mean, I guess... Be some money in that division. Yeah. I mean, I guess the uh, American League East kind of has some powerhouses, if you consider Tampa Bay, up there. But like you said, the money is nowhere near what the Mets and Philly can throw. Uh, Central would be Cleveland, Cincy, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Milwaukee. Um where it gets interesting is Seattle. Seattle is the one team in the league that is just like on an island. As well, far yeah, as they're as far northwest as you can as get. As far as their location. Because I split the divisions up. I had a nice California division with all the California teams. Crazy enough, there's five of them. San Francisco, L.A., L.A., San Diego, Oakland. Uh, I have a northern division with Minnesota, St. Louis, Chicago, Chicago, and Kansas City. They're all like right in a clump there. Uh, southeast, which Atlanta, Florida, Tampa, Washington, Baltimore, which really isn't that far south, but still Eastern Conference or Eastern Coast. 
But the West, with these just extra teams I have left over, I actually called it like the other division because it really didn't make sense. Like Houston and Texas. Texas, Houston, Arizona, Colorado. Those even aren't all that far from each other, but then Seattle. Like right. Just because they got to get thrown somewhere. Yeah. I think, I think baseball will probably do the easy thing, and that is just move Houston. Move Houston. It's nice and clean. You know, you got the three divisions with five teams each. You keep the AL, the NL. But I think what they really need to do is put a little bit more emphasis on winning a division, which will make their regular season a little bit more exciting. It's long. It might as well be exciting. And then the drama of a one-game playoff is something I look forward to every year, you know, hoping that there'll be a tie somewhere and the one-game playoff will be in, in effect. And we would get two of those every year. So, yeah. So the one-game playoff... Would basically be like you'd have extra playoff teams. How many teams was it? Okay, what I would do is instead of having one wild card, I would have three. Okay. So there'd be six playoff teams instead of four. Okay. And the way I would make six playoff teams work is I would have the three wild cards play in the wild card round with the lowest division winner. Okay. So the lowest division winner would be like seed number one in the first round and the third wild card team would be seed number four right and two and three would play each other so the top two wild card teams would play each other and the lowest wild card team and the highest the lowest division winner would play each other so potentially the lowest division winner might not even make the playoffs like the official playoffs potentially okay that yeah that's Interesting, and we talked about this off air. My problem with baseball isn't necessarily watching the games. I mean, they are long. Everyone will point to how long they are. But I don't not enjoy the games. I can watch the games. I enjoy a good play. I enjoy seeing home runs, all that stuff. Everything that has to do with baseball, I, what I have a hard time with is the insignificance of game number 74 in the grand scheme of things, especially if it's a team that – is already out of it playing another team that's basically already out of it. But yours would expand it a little bit. And another cool thing about basically the way we both changed is that every at all times there would be an interleague series. Right. So at all times, and if you if you schedule that properly, at all times we would have this kind of featured series going yeah, on. Yeah, that's true. Right. You know, instead of the Yankees and Mets playing at the same time as the the Red Sox, Red and, Phillies. Sox and Phillies right. or, or whatever combination you have, you can spread those interesting matchups out a little bit, you know, because there would always have to be one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all I got on that if you want to move on yeah. to the NHL. Okay, my NHL I also did – actually, I don't have a simple solution. I titled it the only logical solution. The NHL is tricky. The uh, NHL is very tricky. I think there's only one right way to do it as far as – moving teams but i think columbus and detroit have to go east they're eastern time zone teams playing against teams like vancouver three to four times or four times a year at times or i don't remember exactly what the schedule has playing other teams now outside their division but it just isn't right you play Uh, each team in your conference four times two times at home and two away and two away and you play your division teams Six times, three and three. I never thought of that, but as far as a free agent goes, if I were a free agent, I would want to play for an Eastern team just for the travel reasons. Right. I mean, the Sabres travel to Vancouver once a year, if that, the way it currently is. Um, Right. It's either one or none. Or none. Right. Right. I mean, most of their games, you're traveling by bus to Toronto. Well, if you remember when the Devils won the 95 Cup, they, like, barely traveled at all. 
because I think they might have played the Rangers in a round and they might have played the Islanders in a round and then Maybe I think Philly they played somebody. they played Philadelphia they played Detroit in the finals. finals right you know like they never left the Eastern Time Zone that whole cup run right yeah and I mean Detroit for a, a classy organization that's always done things right. I've heard kind of rumblings that they feel they're kind of owed this. And so I don't that, think the NHL will do wrong by them. So that means you're going to go with a 16-14 split then, right? Yeah, and I actually split it up. I don't know if I'm going to read them off real quick. Go but, ahead. Um, the one division would be basically the same as it is now. Buffalo, Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, Toronto. Added to that would be Detroit, Columbus, and Carolina. Uh, the other division would be basically the way the, uh, what is it, this Central? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rangers, Islanders, New Jersey, Philly, Pittsburgh, and then they would take on the Southeast teams, Tampa, Florida, Washington. So there's your 16. In the West, it's a little more tricky because, again, the Western teams are just scattered scattered out a little more. But I have Vancouver, San Jose, Anaheim, L.A., Calgary, Edmonton, Phoenix in one division, and Nashville, Winnipeg, Chicago, St. Louis, Dallas, Colorado, Minnesota. So you kind of have like a far west and kind of a central, and then you have like an east coast and a northeast. So I think that works pretty well. I think the easiest solution to the playoffs is to go to a divisional playoff system, kind of like uh, I was going to say football, but they don't really like do that. The hockey used to like do. hockey used to right. right. So where in the East you'd have eight teams make it, so but only the top four in, in each, each division. division. Same right. as in the West, top four in each division. I guess you could say the West is a little bit easier because they only have to beat out four other or three other teams. But do top four, top four, and then reseed everybody after the first round. I, can't remember how that would work. Top four, top four. You could play it right through the division. Right, you could. I mean, you could do it either way. I, don't, yeah. I mean, I guess there's arguments to be made for both. If Washington and Philly both made it, maybe those would be the or – may, or Pittsburgh and Philly, potentially those would be the two best teams in the East. And maybe you wouldn't want them playing each other. Or maybe you wouldn't want them to meet till the conference final. So maybe you could reseed. But, I mean, that's – uh, a local radio guy, Mike Shope here, has the idea where if you finish first, you get to pick your opponent. And I think that would be, that'd be amazing yeah. for hockey. But, yeah, I, I think moving Columbus and Detroit has to happen. All right. So your idea is one of the big ideas floating around. Right. The yeah, other it's I- not, a, not entirely original. The other idea, which, you know, this isn't entirely original either. Well, there's only so many ways you can do it. Right, so. right. Uh, the other idea floating around is that they'd have two conferences of 15 teams and each conference would have one division of eight and one division of seven. So I took that model. Okay. I gave Detroit the privilege of being Moving in the Eastern the East. Conference because they've done Darn more it. for the right. league than Columbus. And I kept Columbus in the West. I have four divisions, the East, Southeast, Northwest, and West. My Eastern division is Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Buffalo, Boston, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Detroit. That's the eight-team division in the East. The seven-team division in the East is called the Southeast, and it's the Rangers, Islanders, Devils, Capitals, Tampa Bay, Florida, and Carolina. You don't worry about taking Pittsburgh from Philly and Washington in that scenario? No. Okay. Because they still get to play four times a season. That's true. It's only two less times. That's true. And, and um, I like the three Canadian teams being together and then the three New York teams being together. And then you have the two Pennsylvania teams together. Right, right. You have the two Florida teams together. So that's my east and southeast. And the other one, I have the northwest, which is Calgary, Columbus, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Chicago, Minnesota, St. Louis, and Nashville. 
Nashville is another one of those teams that are in the Eastern Time could Zone. Move to the East, right? Could move. But honestly, I didn't know what to do with them. Winnipeg's fairly close. To, I mean, it's weird because you've got teams like Vancouver that are four-hour different, and then you have teams that are also in the right. West that are... So my other division is the West, and I tried to make that division the seven most West teams, teams, and I think I accomplished that because it's San Jose, Anaheim, L.A., Vancouver, Phoenix, Colorado, and Dallas. Okay. So I think those are the furthest West teams. Only Colorado and Dallas aren't in the Western time zone, but they are in the mountain time zone. Yeah, I have to admit that Calgary and Edmonton were in – That's like I have a division with Van, Vancouver, San Jose, Anaheim, L.A., Phoenix, Calgary, Edmonton, but my Canada geography isn't that great, so I wasn't sure where Calgary and Edmonton were. I wanted to keep all the Canadian teams together, but half in each conference. So I have Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa together in the east, and okay. then I have Winnipeg, Edmonton, Vancouver, or but Vancouver. Vancouver just had to stay west, so they're right, right. Uh, kind of a Canadian team on the island. But I have, I have three sets of Canadian teams in one, three sets in the other, and then Vancouver kind of being the eyeball. Do you give any thoughts of removing divisions entirely in hockey? There I did consider there it. There didn't used to be divisions. I did consider it, but with 15 teams in each conference. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know what you do with, this, with the schedule. Under this proposal, I still don't know. But I figured for the playoffs, um, the way I would do it is, like you said, top four, top four. Sure, the two divisions with seven are going to get a little bit of a break because only three teams are going to miss the playoffs instead of four. But that was like that for a while anyway. And it'll be fun because it'll get division rivalries in the playoffs again, which I think people loved and missed. Right. I mean, I remember growing up, all the battles that the Sabres and Bruins had in the first round being legendary. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think there was some talk of maybe, well, probably not Boston because of Montreal, but just say for the sake of argument, Boston was one of the teams to leave our division. I don't think the Sabres would really miss that as a rivalry. And imagine a year where Buffalo, Boston, Pittsburgh, and Detroit made the playoffs. That would mean Philadelphia, Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal didn't. Right. You know, so that would be interesting. Um, and, you know, there's still teams where they just shouldn't be. You know, it would be a Florida. lot easier to do this if, like, Florida didn't have any teams. Yeah, there's too many teams that are close to the Eastern time zone. Like like I was saying, Winnipeg, I think it might only be – or, like, Chicago. You, like, Detroit's going to move to the East. Chicago's pretty close to Detroit, but they're one hour different. The West, like – it's just weird how many teams there are. East. You almost have to have Washington, Tampa Bay, Carolina, and Florida together. Right. You almost have to do that. So then there's the start of a division. Who do you fill in? And that's why I put the three New York teams in there because it creates a division of seven. The three New York teams would want to stick together, I would assume, in a division. Yeah, I have the three New York teams and the Pittsburgh teams together. I did move Carolina in with Columbus in that division, but our plans are different. I have two extra teams to deal with in my, right. in my East. So that's it. That's the sportscasters realigning Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League. We'd love to hear your plans for realignment. If you have one, email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and we'll talk about it yeah. uh, you, next week on the show. So If you know like Bud Selig or yeah, Gary Batman, have, have him give us a call. we yeah, got it all figured out. We've, we've talked to no commissioners yet, so we'd be glad to talk <laughs> to them. But yeah, give us uh, give us an email, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and tell me how you would realign these leagues. And uh, we'll be right back with Nate Dunlevy from 18 to 88.
Our next guest is the main man at the 18 to 88 blog that focuses on the Indianapolis Colts. And he's nice enough to join us today to continue our 32 Teams, 32 Blog series. And his name is Nate Dunlevy. How are you doing today, Nate? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing very good. Very excited to have you on. And uh, I guess I should, I guess I owe you somewhat of an explanation as to how I found you. And basically what happened is uh, we started this idea where we wanted to kind of try to expose our listeners to the 32 coolest blogs that the National Football League had. And we started out with a Lions blog that I stumbled across called uh, The Lions in Winter. And sure, good blog. Yeah, and uh, it is a very nice blog, and the guy was really cool. So we're like, all right, let's continue this. And over Super Bowl, we had had a beat writer on from, that represented the Green Bay Packers, and his name was Rob Domofsky. And I asked him to recommend a Packers blog. He recommended Cheesehead TV. We interviewed them. It went great. I asked them what their favorite non-blog was, and the first one he said was 18 to 88. Wow. So uh, props from Cheesehead TV to 18 to 88, and uh, I went on the site, and it was very cool. So I figured we'd touch base, and it was nice. We set it up real easy, and here we are. So uh, I guess my first question for you. Well, it's good to be on. Thank you a lot for having me. Yeah, no, no problem. No, I appreciate you being available. My first question for you is, as I ask all the bloggers, is just a little background, how you got started with the 18 to 88 project, and uh, really like kind of how you got to this point. Sure. Well, I've been a season ticket holder for the Colts since 1997, and before that, we, my family used my grandparents' tickets. So, so really, we've been, uh, my family has been season ticket holders since 1984 when the Colts moved to Indianapolis. And my brother wrote me one day in 2007 and said, we've started a blog, it's called 18 to 88, Start Writing Things. And that was, yeah, four or five years ago, and over that time, it's been really gratifying. Uh, people seem to like the, the bent that we take, which is we try not to blather is the sort of our mantra. Don't blather, have something to say. So we try to do stat-based pieces. We try to do things that, that take a look at the tape. We try not to just yammer on incessantly. So I, I try, hopefully won't do that today. And then about a year ago, I actually wrote a book about the history of the Colts in Indianapolis called Blue Blood. Tales of Glory of the Indianapolis Colts, which focuses just on the Indianapolis segment of Colts history, which most people know the Colts have a divided history between Baltimore and Indianapolis, and it's a rather contentious one. And the people of Baltimore hate Indianapolis, and the people of Indianapolis are tired of being looked down on by the people of Baltimore. So I sort of wrote a, a history of the Colts that obliterates the, the, the whole first 25, 30 years of their existence in Baltimore and focuses just on the last 30 years or so that they've been in Indianapolis. I noticed that you do have a podcast as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's called 18 Plays, and during each game, during, after each game, we break down the tape, and we pick the 18 most pivotal or influential plays during the game. Love it. And just talk about what we see. We don't want to just get on and just talk endlessly about, oh, I think this guy played good or this guy played bad, but we try to root it in tape study, film study, and to have something very specific to say. On this play, I see this guy blew this block. Or this receiver looks like maybe he ran the wrong route. Or, or this linebacker was out of position. Or, or, or the best, doing the best that we can, we try to have something really specific to say about the plays that made the difference in each and every game. Now, the blog 
it seems okay. So you're on Blogwin now. Do they do they do they pay to have the right to the site? Like I see, you have some sponsors here. So are you you are making a little bit of money on this or? Yeah, yeah. The blog has started to become um, uh, profitable to some degree. It 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 wasn't for the first several years that we did it, but our traffic's really grown. Uh, uh, not quite exponentially, but but pretty dramatically. We now have well over a million people visit us every year, which is exciting. And we do pretty good traffic now, so now we're starting to, to pull in a little bit of income, and we have uh, some sponsors that have come on board, which is exciting. And then, uh, you know, of course, obviously the, the book generates some revenue as well. So it, it started to become a, a, a hobby on steroids, a, a cottage industry of sorts. It's, uh, it's growing and it's exciting, and, and we definitely have a pretty loyal and committed group of readers which really make a, a fine community to be a part of, and that's probably the most rewarding part of, of doing 1888. Does the length of the lockout worry you in terms of momentum for the site and you know keeping on things like sponsors and keeping the site profitable? Well, I think I'm mostly worried for the city of Indianapolis as a whole, more than for my specific site, because Indianapolis is slated to host the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. So I kind of take a little more macro view of it. Yes, in terms of 18 to 88, our traffic has been basically where it was last year, which for us is a dramatic slowdown. And I do attribute the lockout to that. Uh, we, you know, we're pretty much gone month by month. We think we were a little bit better off in May. We were a lot better off in May than May last year. But June this year is about the same as June last year because we didn't have things like minicamp to write about. Right. So the, the trajectory of the blog has been nothing but constant increase. So to see a month that's similar to a month last year, um, even though it's not a decline, it's not an increase, and I do attribute that to the fact that there's just nothing to write about. I mean, after a certain point, especially for a site like ours, where we don't like to just write about nothing, there are days where you just wake up and you say, there's nothing to say today. And I, I do a link section where I link to other articles that, go, that are around the, the Internet that are, that are useful, that are helpful on a wide variety of topics. But there are just days where... You know, at this point in the summer, I've, I'm near to exhausted all of the, the statistical studies that I can do and all the things I can say. We haven't had, even had free agency to be able to talk about. So at a certain point, you run out of things to say, and rather than just yak on and on, I'd rather say nothing. So it, it becomes a challenge every day to find something to write about, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the Colts. Uh, the lockout's frustrating. Let's kind of just put that in behind us for a second. Sure. That, but, that's the same for everyone. Everyone's going to have some <laughs> more answers to that. So my first question about the Colts is, how quickly after the lockout gets done should we expect a deal for Peyton Manning to get done? I think that that depends on the state of the salary cap, but I think we're all expecting it to happen fairly soon mostly because the Colts will conceivably save significant cap room by signing Manning to a long-term deal. Those tend to lower first-year cap numbers. And if the Colts are serious about making some, some moves in free agency, which they typically don't do, but in this year it could be argued that there are some moves that they could make that would be really helpful, especially at the safety position, that getting a deal done with Manning, and the Colts have made him offers which would have made him the highest-paid player in the league, but because of the uncertainty with the CBA, it just was too difficult to, to finalize a deal. So I think everyone's hopeful that that deal will fall into place relatively quickly and that that will be the first sort of large stone in place, and then you can build a cap strategy around that deal. 
I think that's what we're hoping, at least. What did you think of their draft? Uh, the draft was, was, was solid. The, there were two ways the Colts could go based on their you know, recent playoff losses. The Colts' last four playoff defeats have involved blown fourth-quarter leads, which people don't realize that, that the Colts have had the lead in four straight postseasons where they, where they ended up losing the game. And to me, that screamed that there were some defensive uh, deficiencies that needed to be addressed, especially in the back end of the secondary, which really was ravaged by injuries last year. While the Colts didn't do that, I think they attacked their second largest need, which was for offensive tackles. The Colts' offensive line has been horrible, among the worst in the NFL for the last three seasons. It doesn't always show up in statistics like sacks and sack percentage because those are way more dependent upon the quarterback, and the Colts always lead the league in the fewest sacks allowed because Manning simply gets rid of the ball so quickly. However, anyone who watches the team can see that this is not a team that protects the quarterback well at all. So to address the offensive line and to bolster the running game via the offensive line was probably, in my book, the second greatest need the team had. And then everyone feels good, I think, about the, the players the Colts ended up selecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you talk a little bit about the blown leads, and uh, I don't know if I've let this out of the bag yet to you, but I am a big Saints fan. So I think we should discuss the Super Bowl a little bit. Um, sure. Just because I've never had the chance to discuss it really with a Colts fan, I don't think. <laughs> Do you want to know my favorite statistic from that game? This sure. Is the best stat. The best thing that I think describes the stat. The Colts defense forced one third down. Only one third down in the entire second half of that game. Hmm. Yeah. That is amazing. That is amazing. Let alone, let alone getting the Saints off the field. Let alone getting a defensive stop. They only got the Saints to third down one time in the second half. You're not going to win a football game. And, you know, a lot of people focus on the, uh, the interception at the, uh, towards the end of the game, Porter's pick, but most of us were already depressed before that happened. At the time, the Colts were trailing by seven points. I think there were, what, uh, two and a half, three minutes to go. Yep. They're about the 30-yard line. And everyone was looking at the clock, and we all realized that even if the Colts had scored to tie the game, going to have to give the, the ball back. The Saints were going to get the ball back, yep. and the Colts had forced one third down the entire second half. I considered the game over before the pick. Well, I, I thought the Colts would go down and score the touchdown, but I had no hope. I mean, literally, I, they had the ball driving to tie the game, and I had no hope because I knew there was absolutely no chance that that defense with Dwight Freeney on one ankle was going to stop Drew Brees. None. Here's, zero, zero, zero. here's a couple so while thoughts the interception I have. became the sort of a signature moment, the game was over well before that, at least in my book. Well, I'll tell you what I love about the interception in a second. But before I get to that, there's a couple things in the first half that I don't understand, and maybe you can explain them to <laughs> me as a Colts fan. The first thing is, well, the first thing doesn't require an explanation, but maybe the biggest ga- play of the game was the Pierre Garçon drop in the first half. Absolutely. Because if he catches that, that ball, I don't, that ball think anyone's, that I don't think anyone's catching him. So I think that's a touchdown, yeah. and that game might be over right there. So that's a Absolutely. huge, that's I a huge play. Agree. Yeah. The second thing I don't understand. Well, the first thing I don't understand is you stop the Saints on fourth and goal, which I was okay oh with the God. decision to go because my thought is yeah, it was it was the right decision. Sean right. Payton made a great call to go for the the touchdown there. It didn't work out, but it was the right call. Worst case scenario, Indianapolis to do something stupid. Right. Worst case scenario, it's first and ninety nine. Go ahead. Well, Absolutely. What was with the three running plays? 
I mean, it absolutely is Peyton, Peyton Manning's team, right? I mean, you do You are 100% correct. It was absolutely indefensible. There is absolutely no justification for it. Manning said after the game that that call came from the sidelines. He was not allowed to audible. Uh, the Colts are not necessarily a strong running team, although Adai had had a pretty decent first half. But on a key third and one to hand the ball to Mike Hart, who's one of the slowest players in the NFL, to, to, it was an absolutely indefensible decision, and it's the second. There were three plays in a row. The Garcon drop, then the three runs, and then finally the onside kick where Hank Baskett decided to field it with his face. Face, yeah. The, if any <laughs> one of those three plays had gone the other way, I do believe Indianapolis comes away with the, the victory in that game, which is, again, why I was so depressed well before the, uh, the interception ever took place, is because I felt like the game had already been had already been given away. But yeah, no, I support Jim Caldwell more than a lot of people. I actually understand some of the things that he does. I do believe that that was a completely indefensible decision. I felt that the Colts should have gone past on at least two of those plays. What ended up happening was it created almost an entire quarter of the game. I believe it was something like 12 or 13 minutes of game time from the time where Garcon drops the third down pass all the way till after the Saints recover the onside kick and go down and score a touchdown to take the lead. It's something like 12 or 13 minutes of game time where Peyton Manning did not throw a pass. Right. And that is, that's bad football. And, and another yeah, thing. I, I am not a Caldwell hater. I am not a Caldwell killer. I do believe that that was absolutely horrible coaching. And I said it at the time. I thought Peyton's call to go for it was correct. And I thought Caldwell's conservative decision to run three times was surrendering, surrendering a field goal to the Saints and was absolutely unnecessary. The best the Saints were probably going to do anyway was a field goal. That was my feeling. You right. know, if you go for it, yep. if you throw the ball a couple times and one thing complete, the Saints are likely going to wind up with a field goal, and so you're, you're better off having tried. But uh, they ran the ball, and it was, a, it was a huge mistake and a great disappointment. Yeah, and uh, you know what? As a fan of the Saints and watching it on play, I thought, well, you know, what worried me at when we, when we lost fourth and one is, okay, worst case scenario here, Peyton Manning's going to get to touch the ball twice before we do, and he could turn it into 14 points. Well, they gave away the first opportunity and didn't even change field position, didn't do anything with the ball, gave the ball back to us. We had the field goal before the half. Great. Then we cr- created the change of possession as they planned to do before the game uh, with the onside kick, and we take the lead. So it totally changed the game. Obviously, P- Pierre Garçon's drop was huge. And the reason why I think people talk about the interception so much is because as a Saints fan, that was the moment you know you were Super Bowl champions. It was almost... Yeah, and and I, I, I see that from your perspective. From my perspective, the Saints were the Super Bowl champions about two or three minutes earlier. <laughs> that was... I had already I had already written the game off after the Saints uh, got the two point conversion. That was the the moment in which I my heart really did, sank. Did you think the, that that was a conversion overturn? Did you think it was a bad call? The overturn? Yes, you, I do. You do think I, it was I, a bad I, call? I don't think that it makes. Any, I don't. Here's the thing. I don't like the newer interpretation of the rule that you have to con- continue the catch all the way through. I think that leads to too many gray areas and. When you watch that play in super slow motion replay, it looks like he has possession again for, you know, what looks like a long time. But in real speed, that's, that's a tenth of a second. You know what I mean? That's a fraction of a second. And I don't think that in real speed that's enough time to constitute possession under the rule. In the end, I don't know how much difference it made. But at the time, I felt like it was a, a replay-based 
It was something that looked true on replay that I think that probably wasn't actually true at full speed. And I think the, in that instance, the full speed that you don't have possession of the ball for that long is probably a better way to, to judge that. But yeah, I mean, that's, I said, a, that's a problem inherent in the way that they've been calling catches and no catches for a long time now. And uh, I think that until they fix that, which they declined to do this year, the competition committee didn't address, until they fix that, we're just going to keep seeing calls like that, like the like the Calvin Johnson touchdown right. call. They, they, you're just going to keep seeing stupidity like that, and, and they don't seem to want to get it right. So, Here's what I thought when the, when the two-point conversion went our way. My thought was, well, now they can only tie us. And right. that, that changed the mindset a little bit. But on the interception, as a Colts fan, do you think that was Manning's fault, or do you think that was Reggie Wayne's fault? And wouldn't no, you it have was loved... Reggie Wayne's fault. Yeah, you put that on Reggie Wayne. 100%. Reggie Wayne, first of all, got hurt the day before the game. Right. Which is kind of one of the overlooked storylines. He, tweet, he tweaked his ankle. And if you watch that play, I know Porter's like, oh, I can't believe he threw it, he jumped around or whatever. But the, they run that route all the time, and guys know that they're throwing that route all the time. Tracy Porter's not the first cornerback to think that he could read that route correctly. However, Reggie Wayne basically fell down on the route. I mean, he, he, he stumbled, and he didn't get into his break. If Wayne is where he's supposed to be, at worst, it's an incomplete pass, right. and it's probably a short completion. I, I really don't think that there's any – I don't think it was a bad pass. That's, he threw the ball before Wayne made his break. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the right play there. And so it looked like Manning went right up to him Wayne and said something. Wayne has to stay on his feet. And the quarterback looks bad. You know, whenever the receiver doesn't go where he's supposed to go for whatever reason, the quarterback ends up looking like, where, where did we throw that ball? There's nobody there. Well, there's supposed to be someone there. And in this case, it was Reggie Wayne. There was a really, actually, ironically, a Cleveland Browns site a couple of years ago did a frame-by-frame breakdown of that play, which was outstanding, in which you can actually see Manning glancing over at Dallas Clark, glancing at Austin Call, you can actually see him make going through his progression before he hits Reggie Wayne. And at the time, there was a lot of bizarre sort of, uh, let's create this meme like, oh, Manning choked, and he didn't look off, or he stared down Wayne the whole way. And you can actually see on the progression that that's not actually what happened at all. That he actually did read a progression, then he threw to Wayne, only Wayne stumbles, he, doesn't, he can't make the cut right on his ankle, and so he doesn't make the break correctly. He doesn't run the route right, and uh, there's nobody there except Porter to pick the ball off. And did you think it was a clip? Did I think it was a clip? Eh, I, I don't think it matters because uh-huh. the Colts were not going to stop the Saints. The, the reason why the two-point conversion made such a big deal to me, and as you said, well, they can only tie the game at that point, is because there was always a chance the Saints could miss a field goal. You know yes. what I mean? Like, yep. If, if, the, if the, that had been a five-point game and the Colts were driving to take the lead and Manning and throw that interception, I would have been devastated. Because there's always a chance with a two-point lead that, that you know, the Saints are going to come down and miss a field goal. Right. Uh, I found it really unlikely that the Saints would miss the field goal and then you're in overtime, you know, in the tie game type situation, then you'd be in overtime and then, you know, if the Saints wouldn't have tossed the game's essentially over at that point. One, they could have tried another onside kick because with Hank Baskett on the field, who wouldn't just keep trying it? <laughs> <laughs> However, um, I was in despair at that point. And actually, if you look at... Um, uh, game probabilities. There's a really good side advanced NFL stats that shows game probabilities. Uh, the Colts were only about a 20% chance to win the game at the time that interception occurred, and it dropped from like 22% to 1%. You know, right? And uh, so when you talk about like 
big swings on interceptions in terms of game probabilities, uh, that was not even one of the top ten of the decade in terms of like major playoff, you know, championship game or Super Bowl changing interceptions. That really wasn't. It was this kind of iconic moment, but when it, it, the actual impact on the game was much, much smaller than what I think people realize. The swing wasn't that big. Right, I, I just think it was, it was the, the moment... The were pretty well screwed at that point anyway. It was the moment that the Saints won the Super Bowl, though. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Because Absolutely. before that, it was Peyton Manning and, a, and maybe a coin toss and who knows. But at that moment, when that ball was picked off and Tracy Porter ran it back in, it was the first time... Well, that's... It, I mean... I'm glad my reaction isn't on tape because I probably would be embarrassed, but um, I know that that's the moment that I kind of let go and said, all right, we're Super Bowl champions. That's it. We, we close and, it and out. Those, we moments are, those moments are precious. You know, when yeah. the Colts beat the Bears in, 2000, in the 2006 Super Bowl, there, there's a moment where Kelvin Hayden makes an interception on the sideline, Barry keeps his feet in bounds and runs it back for a touchdown. And it's still early in the third quarter, but it was at that moment in which you just kind of knew. You know, right. for the first time, you could really believe it. I absolutely understand the emotional impact of those moments and, and why they become iconic. They, as long as we don't you know, base uh, too much football analysis on the emotion of the moment, then, and, then, and you've done a great job pointing out, that game was really lost with a series of plays of, in the first you know, half, bad yeah. plays and bad decisions earlier in the game. Yep. Yeah, and you know, I think you know you have to be. A, I think if you're going to be honest with yourself as a fan, and if I'm going to be honest with myself as a Saints fan, I'm smart enough to know that if, if Pierre Gasson catches that ball, that's it. It's it's done. But yeah, you, know, you know the thing about that is though, that's who Pierre Garçon is. Like there there are mistakes. He's, that he's HIV free. In a game where you don't expect it. You know what I mean? Like you don't expect. Uh, Jerry Rice to trip and fumble and turn and, and give the ball to the other team. You know what I mean? But you do expect Pierre Garçon to drop passes because that's what Pierre Garçon does. He drops a lot of passes. So it was one of those things where you don't get that moment hurts as a fan, but you don't, you just shrug your shoulders and you say, well, that's the kind of mistake that I would expect Pierre Garçon to make because he makes it on a weekly basis. He drops passes like that pretty regularly. It's it's the thing holding him back, keeping him from being a next-level elite wide receiver, which he definitely has the physical gifts to become, but he has a problem dropping passes. And it just so happened that he dropped one at a critical time. And that's not a choke. That's just who the guy is. You know what I mean? Like, right. He's a guy who drops passes, so dropping one at the wrong time isn't, isn't out of character, I guess. Well, you know, and one thing nobody talks about is on the Saints' first drive of that game, Marquise Colston, who isn't a guy who drops passes, dropped a huge one. Yeah, you know, the so this, not looking very shaky, yeah. Right, so the Saints, you know, maybe they get points there, so maybe it's a drop for a drop. I don't know. But the good news about maybe, Pierre Garçon... Maybe, but, but, but when you get the chance to go up 17-3, to 3, I mean, are you really got to think that game is over. Oh, yeah, it would have been done. No, I can, maybe he doesn't score on it, but, that, but the, Colts are, or the Colts are just rolling offensively at that point. I think he scores. And, I've uh, watched that play a bunch of times. I don't think anyone catches him. I think he's, he's really gone. He's really fast, and he yeah. scores on that play a lot. You yes. know what I mean? Like, that's, a, yep. that's definitely... When it was going, I mean, and it's one of those. It's one of those why I don't get into you know, uh, quarterbacks or chokers or this or that or didn't win the big game because, you know what? Sometimes you throw a perfect pass on third down and it hits the guy in the hands and he doesn't catch it and and everything's different after that. So, you know, it's one of those things. It was it, it was who he was. Who he is is a guy who can score on a play like that, and who he is is a guy who drops passes on a play like that. So. And who he is is a guy who is HIV free. If you saw his tweet last yeah, night. Later. 
<laughs> <laughs> he tweeted his uh, HIV test. That's a first for me on Twitter to to see someone so proud of that. But uh, next question for you. Let's get away from the sure. game. It was fun to talk about. But sure. my question is for you, will you be happy with Peyton Manning's legacy if it is only one ring? I don't put as much stock on the playoffs as some people do. I mean, some people are like, rings are the only thing that counts. I don't believe that. Actually, I fundamentally disagree with that. I believe the playoffs are basically luck-based. That in any kind of single elimination tournament, the, the real accomplishment is making it there every year. And what happens once you get there is kind of a crapshoot. I mean, it comes down to so many lucky things. You know, uh, Manning already has the NFL record for most playoff games lost with a quarterback rating over 90. <laughs> you know, right. the, the Steelers and Patriots are 13-0 and when Roethlisberger or Brady has a quarterback rating over 90. The Colts are 4-5 and when Ooh. Manning has a quarterback rating over 90. So, what is, so I have a hard time like, looking at Manning's legacy as somehow incomplete because, as I said, four consecutive blown fourth quarter leads. He doesn't play defense. You know what I mean? Right. He doesn't. He doesn't play strong safety. He's given the Colts the lead four consecutive years in the in the postseason and uh, in the fourth quarter, and the defense hasn't held. So, you know, I, I'm not. I, I don't hold that against him. I guess he's got a higher career passer rating in the postseason than Roethlisberger or Brady, or Brady does, and people don't realize that his postseason stats are way better than Tom Brady's. But there's a uh, there's a luck factor involved, and there's a your teammates have to be involved factor. So I hope the Colts can can win another Super Bowl. But you know, as long as in the next four years they feel a competitive team, they keep making the playoffs, they keep giving themselves the chance. I yeah, I hope they get lucky and they hope they win one. But uh, if they don't, as long as they feel the good teams and Manning's played well, I'll I'll be happy with that. Yeah. Where does the team go with running back? You know, I I think that at this point. Uh, Joe Dye's neck problems may prove to be just a little too scary for the, the Colts to, to resign. I don't believe that uh, running the football is all that important. I think running the football is a really overrated thing in the NFL. That kind of harkens back to the way that football used to be played but really doesn't, isn't played anymore. I think Donald Brown is, pro- is going to probably have a much better season. The Colts' problems running the football have been with the offensive line. Charlie Johnson is a terrible left tackle. Uh, Ryan Deem is not has not been a good right tackle for a couple of years. He used to be a very good one, but his age is really caught up with him. Now that the Colts have picked up two new offensive linemen, uh, Anthony Costanza will definitely start at left tackle, and uh, Jelana will possibly start at right tackle, although the lockout may wreak havoc with that. He may be a guard for his rookie year. But now that the Colts have new offensive linemen, I expect that you'll just see an instant improvement in the running game. Casey Joyner did a good piece in which he basically showed that the Colts' problem in the running game isn't with the running backs at all, but rather that they have way too many uh, rushes for a loss, which are almost always, you know, most stat people will tell you rushes for a loss are Mr. on the Simons. offensive line. Right. Colts' backs just get hit in the backfield so much that when the Colts have room to run, they actually run pretty effectively. And Don Brown, in the biggest game the Colts had last year, uh, week um, 16 win over the Jaguars, had a huge, or the Week 15 win over the Jaguars had a huge game, biggest game of his career. So I think that they'll probably go with Brown, and then uh, Delon Carter, their fourth-round pick, will probably be sort of a short yardage 
type of situation, and I don't think a guy gets re-signed unless he's available very, very cheap. You said that there's a chance the Colts might be involved in free agency this year. Is there a player that, if you could pick one out, that you would most like them to sign? Yeah, Eric Weddle. Safety. Absolutely. I'd take just about any top-flight safety at this point, but yeah, Eric Weddle. The Colts have uh, Melvin Bullitt, who was the starting safety in that Super Bowl, who is a free agent. Uh, He got hurt last year. He actually played very poorly in three or four games before getting hurt. And uh, I don't think that Bullet is anything other than a guy. I think he's a, a, a competent player. If he's your backup safety, he's a great backup. He's a great guy to have in your team. Good, you know, good guy, good player. Not, it's not trying to be disparaging of him. I just don't think he's an he's an excellent safety. And if the Colts could upgrade at the safety position, I think that would go a long way. How frustrating has Bob Sanders' career been as a Colts fan? You know, I, I'm the, the biggest Bob Sanders fan out there. My, my brother and I, when we originally started 1888.com, we wrote under, under pen names that were variations of nicknames that we had for Bob Sanders. It, it was sad, I think, to see the injuries to Sanders, but all of the myths and legends about what he did to that defense in 2006 after missing the entire year over injury and then right. coming back in time for the playoff and transforming the defense, those are all true. I mean, when you go back and watch those games, Sanders was an absolute force. You know, in the Super Bowl, he had a forced fumble and an interception. He had the key pass breakup when the Patriots were leading 34-31 with two, just over two minutes to play, 2-26 to play. Uh, they had a third and four, and if they converted, the game's over. And Bob Sanders nice in and, and bats the ball down from Troy Brown. And, you know, the Colts end up going on a, a great drive, and Joseph Adai scores. But we never have that moment without Bob Sanders making that play. So... Real Colts fans adore Bob Sanders, will always love Bob Sanders. It's going to be difficult to watch him in a Chargers uniform. Letting him go was the only choice. I mean, it's not even like the right choice. It's just the only choice. You just can't continue to pay a guy who can't stay healthy. But um, my hope is that Colts fans will remember him for everything that he did and will you know, love him. And when he was drafted, the only reason they got him was he fell to the second round because of injuries concerned. Right. So the thing about Sanders is it's kind of like the thing with Garcon. You knew this is who he was when you drafted him, and you knew this is who he was when they signed him to the extension. He was always an injury risk. So you went in with your eyes wide open. You know what I mean? Like, nobody can be like, oh, I didn't know he was going to be hurt this much. Well, <laughs> you know, it was always a possibility. You know, we all knew, and all the fans were all happy when he got re-signed to his big contract after being Defensive Player of the Year in 2007. And you knew. That's, you knew that this could happen, that this was out there, that this was possible. And... And it happened. So, you know, you just kind of have to shake your head and say, them's the breaks. The Sportscasters are here with Nate Dunlevy from 18to88.com. You can follow them on Twitter very easily, at 18to88. One last question for you. Where do you see 18to88 five years from now? What's your you ultimate know, I re- vision? I have, I have no idea. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a writer uh, first. I have a, another book coming out later this fall, a novel. I'm working on a, a second novel. I hope to be able to continue 1888. I'm kind of going through a career change right now, and we'll see uh, if the blog lives past this season. I hope that it does. I, my fans, I, I, I feel weird saying my fans, but I have a lot of readers that have been incredibly supportive, and I, I kind of keep going for them. The blog takes a lot of time to do it right. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I'm proud of. I, I think that it's a it's a it's a good blog, and I'm and I'm proud of the way that I do it. But that takes a lot of time, and I don't know uh, 
for how long I can continue to invest that, that kind of time in it to make it the way that I want it to be. And I kind of don't know. I, have to, I may have to make a decision someday. Do I want this blog to continue as it is? Um, do I want this blog to continue in some form, even a lesser form, or do I want it to just say, you know what, it was great while well, I could make it great, and once I can't make it great, then maybe it's time to shut it down. So I don't know. It kind of depends on how some of my, my books are received, how some of my writing projects go. Um, I want to make it work. I want to keep it happening, and I hope that in five years that it's, it's you know, seen as the major source for Colts news and information. Um, but we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see how long uh, how long I can keep it up. How long my wife will let me keep keep hammering away at it. So well, best of luck to you, and thank for thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, come on the Sportscasters. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Anytime. Thanks, buddy. All right, the sportscaster's back here for one last segment. Don't forget that this is a two-podcast week, so make sure you check out episode number 29 with the puck daddy, Greg, Greg Wyshynski. Also, an interview with Jonah Carey, the great Jonah Carey, all pumped up about him, his new project, which is actually a book about his beloved Montreal Expos, an interesting conversation with Jonah. Also, an interview with... Uh, the first woman on the sportscasters outside right. of our mothers. First woman, first GM. Yep, Sarah Kowak. But that's episode 29. Uh, once again, I want to thank Mike Lombardi and Nate Dunlevy for joining us on episode 28. Also, uh, just a couple of reminders. You can find us on the internet, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. We asked you to email us any ideas you might have for realigning Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League. You can send those emails to the sportscasters at gmail.com. Also, Don has a new blog up, and I will be live blogging at noon on July 1st. I'm sure I will be too. And yeah. Don probably will be as well. And you can find those blogs at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And also, we're on Stitcher now. So it's a new way to find the podcast iTunes, Stitcher. Downcast, Instacast, we're all over the place. And all this stuff you can find out on our website, which, again, is sports-casters.com. And Twitter is the other one I wanted to mention where we are at sports underscore casters. Okay, last piece of business for today. Pick four. Uh, eh, not a great week. I went two and two. Uh, the Rays over the Brewers, six to three, the game of the week. I won that. Also, my winning pitcher of the week came through for me as J.J. Jurgens became the first 10-game winner in the National League with his win over the Padres, 10-1. to I lost uh, a Red Sox game that I thought I had in the bag before it started, but the Pirates are better than I thought. I picked the same stupid game, didn't yep, I? Yep, still over 500, and the Pirates were able to beat the Red Sox and their ace, John Lester, 3-1. to And uh, you know my award predictions just didn't pan out. Um, I lost four out of the seven. And you know... Okay, I made the wrong picks for some of them. Datsuk was maybe a bad pick on my part because he only played the 58 games. But, and I should have picked Kessler there, and I know I should have picked Kessler there. But why did Nicholas Lidstrom yeah, win that, the Norris Trophy again? That Could was, someone uh, explain that to me? That had to be, uh, we, we think he's going to retire. 
type one. We're going to give him one on his way out. But he definitely – he was a minus player for the year, I want to say. Yeah, he was a minus two. Yeah, that – I mean, the argument was Chara or maybe Weber, right? I mean, Lidstrom shouldn't have probably even been in that conversation. but It should have been Chara's award. And I was surprised. Let's see. I was – I got Biles, Biles Moore right. Right. You know, I think I missed the Lady Bing. Ah, shoot. Whatever. Me. Whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, I was disappointed. I thought I should have had the Norris for sure. And I thought I should have had the Hart. Um, I think what happened was is as Sedin kind of coasted to the finish line because his team was so far ahead that Corey Perry kind of stole the award with all the goals he scored he at the end of the year because they had to win those games. Yep. And uh, maybe I should have saw that coming, uh, but I didn't. So I went 2-2. Two and two. My overall record is 48-49. and 49. Don, you had a disappointing one in three, only winning the pitcher of the week. Hideous. Vogel song one for you and the Giants five win, five one win over the Twins. You had the Brewers over the Rays in the game of the week. You had the same Pirates over Red Sox game that I have, and your bold prediction was looking great all week. And then Serena and Venus got laid an egg I'm yesterday, under, yeah. just before the quarterfinals. So kick us off with the game of the week. All right, the game of the week this week is the New York Yankees at the New York Mets. This Friday at 7.10. I don't have the pitchers in front of me, but it's I'm sure Nova you do. It's Nova versus Nisi. I will go with the Yankees. I'm going to also pick the Yankees in that one. Last time the Yankees and Mets met up, I predicted that the Yankees would sweep them, and the only game they lost was the first one. I think the Yankees are going to be ready to take the Mets' first shot this weekend, and I'm going to pick the Yankees to win on Canada Day. I can't. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be thinking about it. Um, my next game is my, the host choice game. I have the Yankees at the Mets Saturday at four o'clock, and I had a reason for picking the Mets in this game, but now I don't have the starting pitchers in front of me. Well, the reason is the Yankees will be so happy for winning to have on one Day. on Canada Day that they will be far too distracted to be able to play effectively on Saturday. All right, I have the pitching matchup now. It is Gordon. For the Yankees, who is 0-1 with a 5.23 ERA versus G, who I've never heard of, G-E-E. But he is an impressive 8-1 with a 3-3-2 ERA. So I think the Mets regroup and win the next day at home. My host choice is I'm going to go with the stud pitcher of the year so far, and that's Verlander for the Tigers. And I'm going to predict that they beat the Mets, who have Palfrey going. Just before the Yankees series, I think the Mets maybe will be looking ahead a little bit to the Yankees. That game's on Thursday, getaway day. June 30th, 105, a day game, and I love Verlander against the Mets. This week, I am going to steal your pitcher of the week from last week and take Jurgens. JJ. JJ Jurgens over Guthrie in Baltimore. Uh, that game is 735 in Atlanta on Friday. My winning pitcher of the week, I'm going to go with the red hot James Shields of the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, tough game. They play the Reds on Wednesday at 12 10 p.m., but Shields has been. Dynamite the last few starts, so I'm going to ride him. All right, my bold prediction, which these are always good. Uh, it seems a little less bold now, so I'll tweak it if you want me to. I'm going to say the Sabres do not sign a number one center, but will trade for one of Spezza, Statsny, or a name I threw in, just looking at some numbers and stuff, Evgeny Malkin. Okay, so the Sabres, for you to win, have to have Malkin, Spezza, or, or Statsny, Statsny on, their- on the roster. That's plenty bold enough. Okay. My bull prediction, there's 14 interleague series from Friday to Sunday. 84 games total. 
I think that the AL will win 51 of them or 60% of the games if there's rainouts. Sounds so good. I think that the AL will win six, er, the AL will beat the NL in at least 60% of the games played over the weekend. Sounds good. All right, that's it for episode number 28 or 27. Again, I want to thank Michael Lombardi. I want to thank Nate Dunlevy. And I want to encourage you to also download episode 29 with the Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski, and the great Jonah Carey. And we will see you next week with AJ Delirio from Deadspin.com. Cue the hip. We're out. All right.